This week's guest is writer Tom Cox. Tom is the author of 11 books, including his upcoming debut novel, Villager, which will be released in April 2022. He is one of my favourite writers, and I'm so happy that we got an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation. We talk about Tom's decision to go his own way and reject traditional methods of publishing, including newspapers. He has a long history of writing newspaper columns and decided several years ago that he didn't want to do that anymore. I found his reasoning for that really interesting. We talk about change, legacy media, class, and of course, writing. Hi, Tom. Hi, Laura. Hi. How are you? I'm very good. I've just been in the sea. Um, and uh, that that feels good. I didn't stay in as long as I wanted. Um, I didn't quite get that sea buzz, but I just got a, a glimpse of it, and that's nice. What's a sea buzz? Well, you just get the the kind of the salt water, the cold water buzz afterwards, which is just, and, and then you have a really hot bath, and you just feel so chilled out. Um, but it's better um, if you do it for quite a while and kind of knacker yourself out a bit in the at the same time first which i didn't really do and i had a wetsuit on so i was cheating because the sea's freezing at the moment um and uh but the wetsuit just makes it possible i reckon i i've just um sort of submitted to the wetsuit after years of resisting it um but what i've realized is that i can swim like 12 months a year now with a wetsuit that sounds pretty intense um yeah, I admire the sea from afar, but I have a strange and deep concern about it. I feel like it's sort of a form of outer space in the world. It is. What's under there? Yeah, it's designed to kill us. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I just to- I'm in total denial when I'm swimming out of what's underneath me. Like, I just, I just decide there's nothing um, scary at all underneath me. It's, ju- it's just water. It's just pure, beautiful water and, <laughs> and a bit of shingle. And that's it. um so the reason that i wanted to talk to you and thank you for talking to me uh because we've never had a conversation in i know this isn't real life but uh, (laughs) but that's still kind of strange because i've spoken to you online for must be like four or five years maybe i think so yeah it's weird isn't it how you kind of pick up like sort sort of internet friends but you don't know them well enough to call them that and then you think that maybe they'll be very unsettled if you say that <laughs> so you don't know where the barrier is between yeah um but yeah so we, we've been in touch a bit over the last few years um and i've obviously read a lot of your work and i love your writing and it often when i read it just makes me like you know when you read someone who you just think is a great writer and you just think i'll just quit tomorrow like what's the point i don't say that i can't I I don't I can't deal with compliments. I don't okay. it's, it's, just say it's terrible or something. <laughs> That's fine. No, okay, you're shit and so am I. Excellent. This is how Irish people interact. Yeah, we don't compliment. So that's yeah. good. That's good. Okay. I, I won't I won't I, say I, that stuff. I anymore. don't understand that though within me because obviously like I've I've worked on my writing to try to get better at mm-hmm. it for me, but like I must want people to like it and want people to say um it's good but i still i can't deal with it when they do (laughs) for some reason it's ridiculous um well i guess it's better than the alternative exactly yeah at least you're not going around claiming you're t.s Eliot or someone awful like that oh i thought you meant the alternative as in um people just saying it's just a bag of wank to me every day I mean, you, I mean, I think once you reach, like one of the things I wanted to talk about is your relationship with social media because you're mm. very good at it, but I get the sense that you're quite uncomfortable with it. And I think one of the issues with it is that no matter how good you are at something or well-intended you are, once you get like a critical mass of followers, there are just a lot of people telling you you're a bag of wank, regardless of whether you are or not. It's just, it's just about, it's pure maths. It's just mm-hmm. it's just, just numbers and it's, what, it's like... Um, I mean, it's when you have a certain amount of followers, but it's also when you can see it. If you must have had a tweet that's just gone, had an unusual amount of retweets, and and when that happens, that's when you get that that little percentage of nastiness or weirdness. It shows itself, doesn't it? More. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, obviously, you you have quite a. Um, I know you, you seem to have kind of reined it in a little bit in terms of your kind of relationship with social media, but you've had a lot of those tweets. So I imagine you've had a lot of mm. just bullshit in general. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, and I sort of view it as a necessary evil at the mm. moment. I mean, I, I, I would love to live in 1969 in lots of ways, not um, the racism, the sexism or the food, but you know, <laughs> the, the music, um, the clothes, and also the fact that like you could be, as, a, as an author um, who had, a, a, had any kind of readership, you, you could probably like quite easily afford to buy a house and you wouldn't actually need to promote that hard if you didn't want to, if you've got, if, say if you got to the point, I mean, I'm on my 13th book now, if you've got to that sort of point and you had a readership, but that's just not, not realistic for me at the moment. I'd like to feel that I could get to a stage with it where I just, um, I did withdraw a bit more and I literally just posted when I had like, here's the new book or here's a, a new story I've written and then just left it apart from that. That would be, a nice way to do it i think yeah you have though you're kind of um in the best possible sense you're quite you're quite an interesting and unusual person that's not a compliment but i just mean that um <laughs> in terms of your uh, i think possibly up until this year some people may have considered your kind of life and professional choices sort of kooky but now post pandemic you kind of seem like um a sort of Nostradamus figure in that obviously you worked in London, you were a journalist, you decided to just leave when when leaving wasn't cool and it wasn't a thing that people did. So can, can you just talk a little bit about your career where you started and how you ended up where you are now? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very long and complicated story, I think. Um, and the, the thing of me living in London, I did that for two and a bit years, which was um, 1999 to 2001. And I came down because The Guardian gave me the job as their rock critic, um, which I turned down at first. Um, and I was only about seven at the time. <laughs> and uh, I, I was like, all my mates were like, what the fuck? And he said, no, like, this is a dream job. And, you know, I'd been kind of just not long before that, like working in a supermarket and a factory briefly. And I didn't, I didn't have a degree or A-level. So it, it was an amazing thing, but I didn't have any yearning to be in London. I already went down to London to review gigs quite regularly. And so I knew the deal. I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I've got to get out of Nottingham to London um, or anything like that. Cause, um, cause I'd grown up, grew up in rural Nottinghamshire. By this point I'd moved to just like the edge of Nottingham. Um, but then I thought, oh, sod it, why not give it a go? So I called them up about three weeks later and said, is the job still going? And they went, yeah. So I took it. But that, that sort of feels like a really long time ago um, to me. And it almost, I, I must be a very different person now because I can't imagine any way that I would cope with two days in London, let alone, alone um, two years. Um, and it's not, and it certainly wasn't as simple as like I um, left. Um, I went to Norfolk initially. I did go to a very rural part of Norfolk, but it wasn't as simple as like, and then I wrote books and everything was okay. It was actually, it was a big struggle. I, I was doing lots and lots of different things. I had my, I just had probably like each toe in a different um, genre of journalism and wasn't really sure what I was. And had, I had a book deal. I, I did write the first book and I was quite young and I thought maybe, I don't know, I wanted to get to a place that I couldn't, get to without the life experience to get to it i wanted the book to be better than it was i then wanted to write fiction no one would let me write fiction because it just um i just wasn't there you know i think those writers who kind of come straight out of the blocks and write this amazing book first we hear about them a lot um these big big hit books that are also like literary classics but that's because they're they're famous because of that so people people hear about them um, and then they think, well, that's the norm. And it's absolutely not the norm. Very few of us do that. I, I think a lot of people are not going to do it until like the 10th book or maybe even later than that. So I was like, I had a few um, unsuccessful books, um, two music books, which I wrote, which um, I basically hate and tell people not to buy. Um, I wrote two, two golf books, which are like golf books for people who don't really like golf. Um, or at least like are interested in golf as 
a process of like um, a psychological game and and the hitting of the ball, but don't like the culture around golf or mm -hmm. are uncomfortable with it. And that's that's sort of what I wrote. And we weirdly, I, I still feel quite proud of those two books. Um, I was quite young when I wrote them. And then um, my cats started bullying their way into my writing in various ways. Um, like when I was writing about, like they, I think there was initially 23 references to my cats in my second golf book. Um, and my editor, he was like a hardcore dog man. He, he was like, can we knock it down to like seven? And I was like, all right, <laughs> that's a compromise. We'll do that. Um, so, and then I just thought, thought, oh, well, actually, I'm writing about them quite a lot. Let's write a book about, about them, which became sort of, as well as I really enjoyed writing about my cats and felt it was a way, because I don't, I don't think books about cats or books about pets are very well written on the whole. And it, it was of a way of me trying to write the, the sort of book that I would have liked to have seen written about pets, I suppose. Um, but it was also a way of me writing a bit about the countryside, family, lots of other things under that banner. But And then I did four of those, and I think they gradually got more, I suppose, more free um, in, the, in the writing uh, by, the, by the third and fourth one. But it, what, that wasn't a smooth ride at all. Like the first one, I feel I can see the limitations of that because it's, because it's got a subtitle that I dislike, that I feel I was slightly pressured into putting on it, which is Confessions of a Cat Man. And mm -hmm. they, made, they made me really kind of play up to that. Whereas it's, it's like, obviously, I've had cats all my life. I love cats, but I love all animals. Um, and it's sort of, so you... But they, they pigeonhole it, and that's like, well, then we've got an angle. We've got a journey. We could get it in the supermarket. And all, the, all those things are, I think, um, they stand in the way of a book being really good in, in when, you're, when you've got that, that pressure or a book being a work of art in some way um, it, rather than just more like a piece of slightly funny extended journalism. I suppose, yeah. which I, which I, do, I don't want to do, and but maybe was more, more easily coerced into doing at that point because it felt like a natural step on from journalism as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was interested to ask about that because obviously you managed to write about, as you say, something under the banner of, of, of having cats, uh, which is so um, expansive and kind of. Um, manages to en encompass you know a real richness of human experience and also to, to just be so funny so I understand why a publisher would sort of try and pigeonhole and 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 pinch you into forcibly creating more of that but obviously as a writer I presume that that wasn't fulfilling so how did you kind of get out of that cycle? I mean I can be quite mean to myself when I think back to that and and really you do what you do what you can do to, to have a career as a writer. It's not easy to, to have a full-time career as a writer. So maybe you do have to make compromises at some point. And may, maybe I did that, but maybe I got to a point where I thought I've done this for many, many years. I would like to do what I've always ha had, like th this desire burning inside me to do, the kind of book, which I can't actually sum up in a really simple soundbite or synopsis. I want to... Um, but I want to. I just want to go fucking write it, and then I don't hate writing synopses for publishers. I can't. I can't stand it. I'd rather write a hundred thousand word book than write <laughs> like a thousand words about this is why people need to buy this book and this is what this book's about. I'd rather find out what the book's about um, as I'm writing it. Really, that's that's kind of the way I am. I like that sort of free jazz approach to it. Um, so and my cat books were getting a bit more like that. Like I had this massive. People perhaps look at them now and say, here's four, here's a series of four cat books, smooth as anything, like they all work together. It was not as simple as that. I had one publisher, the first one was quite successful, and then I tried to, and then the second one's only half about cats. It's, it's like short, short, real-life short stories, half of which are about cats and half of which are about other animals, horses, um, the taxidermy that my dad brought home from this job he had when I was a kid. Um, and that one didn't do very well. And my publishers 
my initial publishers of the cat books um, insisted on putting a kitten in a shoe on the cover. Um, and, and I said, this is a bit misleading. There's no, there are no kittens in this book. And, <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but if we put the kitten in the shoe on it, we get it into Asda and Tesco. And that's all that matters. And then I, I was like, well, you know, I, th I think a lot, a lot of um, readers of, of, of interesting books buy books in Asda and Tesco, but I also think that you are maybe trying to sell this book to people who won't enjoy it, hmm. but just to get the sales. So then it becomes one of these books where it's like people buy it, but then it's in the charity shop like a little bit later. And what I've realized, this is another thing I've realized, it's taken me years to realize, is a book that sells a lot when it first comes out isn't necessarily a book that's read a lot. This is, these hmm. are often two different things. Um, so that, that happened with that, that publisher and they basically said like, um, well, this, this hasn't done as well. Um, we're not taking another book from you unless you start going on telly and be a celebrity of some kind, or you meet a dog who can juggle and then write a book <laughs> about that. Um, and I was like, neither of those things were going to happen. So then I was like, I was really skinned. Um, I was about to lose my house. It was a credit crunch. So I'd lost my two regular columns um for national newspapers um and uh i basically I, I wouldn't say i begged but i i went to another publisher who who were very positive about my writing and um i i said well i've started writing an, another book which is it's sort of about cats but it's about loads of other animals it's about my dad as well it's lots of stories under that and i'll write it for next to nothing you know i'll just write it and give it to you will you publish it this autumn if I write it really quickly and they said yes and um and then I I kind of made a Twitter account to go with the book which ended up being quite successful and the book got on the top 10 Sunday Times bestsellers so that sort of brought me back from the dead really as a writer because mm -hmm. I was thinking no one's ever going to publish me again at that point and then there was there was one more so it's, it's, it's quite a long, complicated story. But, there's, but I actually, the second two cat books, I feel really fondly towards them. And I sometimes um, forget what they're like because I'm so used to people who've not read my books telling me what my books are. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes actually, I almost hear, have heard that so many times. I kind of think, oh, they're just cat books. But, uh, but then I've, I've had a look at them and they're, they're not. And then they were a, ni a nice bridge onto doing something like a bit more psychedelic and mad, which was, which was when I really went, right, I'm going completely independent now. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, that's another thing that you, um, I mean, obviously you're not doing it to be, you didn't do it to be fashionable. It's clearly a, a mix of kind of creative imperative and just personal necessity, but obviously it's quite, it's quite cool now to be some kind of creator of, of art or writing or whatever, and make your own platform or have a subscriber model for uh, funding your work from people who obviously enjoy it. And you did that before it was a thing. Could you, um, you, have, you've started doing that recently, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, I, it, I have. Um, and I, I found it really, really interesting. And, um, it gives me some sense of appreciation of how frightening it must have been for you to do it at a time when no one else is doing it firstly. And just the sense of anticipating my own failure in it yeah. uh, put me off doing it for about six months. I just thought I was the same. Yeah, completely. I, and, and it's not, a, it's just not a very, for, for me, just the idea of where I come from and everything, the idea of asking people for money like mm. that it's just it's really uncomfortable so so my initial thought was with it that i'd, I'd reached this kind of tipping point it, it all came together it was like um me really wanting to write a slightly mad book that i couldn't sum up very easily without writing writing the book which, which ended up being 21st century yokel and me just going i've put in my time with journalism now i just don't want to do it anymore i actually i even don't care if like I have to c get a completely different job. I was starting to think I'd like to work outdoors in some way because I spend so much time outdoors. So my my initial thought when I quit, I said, I'm never doing any journalism for national newspapers again. Um, I'm just going to put all my writing on my website or in my books and it's all going to be for free. But there's a little button on the side that says, um, you, if you want to, you can give me like a quid 
or a fiver a month um, if you if you feel inclined. But it is is all free, um, and I I didn't think that many people would do it. But I suppose I had a bit of confidence just from the fact that I knew I had a readership, and I was starting to like the Guardian column I was writing about the countryside. I was I was just getting very passionate feedback about it. Like people seem to be very behind it. And then I realized people were quite behind the idea of me just breaking out and doing what I really, really wanted to do. And they were in, invested in that. But my my thought was that I probably have to do that and that, I don't know, get a job as a gardener or a tree surgeon at the same time, um, which I would have really liked. But but it it surprised me. Like um, the, the money came in and I was really being paid pennies from The Guardian anyway. I was paid like 150 quid for a um what was often a like 1400 word column um when people were, were sort of a bit surprised when they heard that and and the website actually turned out to be better than that um pay wise and um and then it led me on to the thought of well how do i publish this book maybe i can do that independently too and i just went ahead and wrote it without this book 21st century yoga which is i mean it's folklore nature um humor bit of memoir bit of social history kind of all together and it doesn't really have a beginning middle and end so that's quite a if i'd have said that to a publisher a traditional publisher they would have said go away what's the <laughs> journey you know like t tell us what the angle is tell us what the journey is can you be like really sad at the start and then have some life-changing experience and by the end everything's perfect in your life forever make that clear by the end of the book I didn't want to write that kind of book. My agent now, um, he's he's brilliant, my literary agent, but he, d he did say to me, um, you will need to change this to get it with a traditional publisher. And I said, I don't want to. And that was when I chose to do it with Unbound, the crowdfunding publisher instead, because I knew that I could write it exactly the way I wanted to, which I felt strongly would make it a better book rather than doing that, that journey thing. Um, that everyone wants to help market the book and i felt that people were behind it and i knew they'd make it look really nice but what really surprised me was that we put it up for funding and it funded in seven hours flat and broke their record that was that was just incredible i couldn't have anticipated that and that made me feel maybe i can do this yeah i mean that's obviously um i think i'm, I'm interested in kind of your thought process behind leaving journalism uh in behind you essentially and and why you decided to do that, but I think, um, kind of in terms of context, what you were saying, people have a sense of journalism. I think still in their heads as being kind of I don't know what it was probably like in the eighties, you know, yeah. which is like pints in the afternoon and you know being paid three grand for a column <laughs> and yeah. um, just kind of swanning around, you know, being moneyed and. Uh, upper middle class and not worrying about anything um but but it's obviously not like that at all especially if you're freelance and you write something like a column what you're paid for it is minuscule like i had an irish times column which i loved for six years and um mm. six months on patreon and i am earning more from each weekly column i do on patreon than i was with from six years in the Irish Times. That's insane, isn't it? Now, a lot yeah. of people would still not believe that, would they? A lot of, I suppose a lot of people prob probably thought you were paid more than you were for the Irish Times. Oh, I would imagine so, yeah. And you would think the same for your column was so, uh, it was so good, but it was so loved. So you kind of, it's easy to make this presumption that the person creating that is is paid and appreciated by the body that commissions it, but yeah. often not. Um, <laughs> No, I don't. I have felt appreciated at times in journalism by rare editors, or felt like they've they're behind what they're behind what you are as a writer. But a lot of the time, I mean, they're very rushed and they just want to fill some space. Yeah, and they want to make it simple, and and they preferably want it to be tied to something that's going on at that time. And I th I think that's very limiting as well. I mean, um, I used to think when I was 25, I thought the thing that I really wanted was a column. If I could have a column in a newspaper like every week, then I'd be sorted because it's regular income. And I thought it was a way that you could be quite free with your writing and be, be quite humorous. And, but now I just think, God, I'd hate that. I'd hate to like be forced to have an opinion on what's happening that week and to, and to make the opinion 
into into a readable piece of text really quickly as well mm -hmm. and that's just and i'm so glad that i'm not a person doing that i think people do it very very well but that's not me and that's not what i wanted to do and i always feel that my writing's strongest when i'm not actually reacting to anything that's going on at the time and i'm just writing what i need to write and it's almost like i i tap into something this this sounds like a bullshit cliche because musicians say it they say like you know i didn't write the song i just kind of pulled it out of the air you know <laughs> they, they say that like i'm sure if a keith richard say that but it's, i think it's true you know and i sort of feel like the last few books have felt more like that i'm just being guided by some invisible hand and i don't know how you tune into that i mean maybe it is bullshit but but I think it comes from writing for a long time and then just getting some kind of trust in what you're doing, which I didn't have when I was younger and maybe no one has when they're younger and you have to sort of earn it. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose it takes a while, I think, as well to kind of observe the sort of structures around you. And as you get older and you find yourself in the same situation numerous times and you see the kind of incentives coming downward, especially if you're kind of like, if you write and if you're a free agent, if you don't have the security of, you know, a permanent position, yeah. you find yourself getting sort of shoved around a bit by people who seem more secure and uh, who are much more confident. And I think when you're younger, you equate that intense hubris with knowing anything and it's not necessarily the same thing. Of course. And I mean, I do think class comes into this as well. And I've realised that more and more. And I've realised that, the th see, the thing is that I didn't know that I was from a working class background when I was younger. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, but some people do, don't they? For sure. Yeah. In my case, it was because my mother wanted to pretend we weren't. So I just never realised. But what was your what was your situation? Well, I just think I was just aware of how hard my parents had had it and how hard their parents had had it because my parents both grew up on council estates and um, my mum's family particularly were very, very poor. Um, and, uh, and so I just thought, well, you know, my mum and dad cook like foreign meals and um, and they watch, they watch like arty films. So they must be middle class because of that. And then I must be middle class. But then when I started to go down to London and meet people from a completely different background and meet like, and also like London posh is so different to like Nottingham posh as well. So I, so I started to meet like a couple of posh Nottingham people as I got a bit older, but then it's, it's a completely different level. But, and I'm mixing with those people and I don't realize a lot of those people that I met when I was a journalist, how different their background was to me, their public school background, the confidence that had instilled in them, the fact that they were from generations of people in the media, of writers and editors and artists. I mean, there, there's a lot of nepotism there. You, you can kind of um, say there isn't and pretend there isn't, which I, I did for a while, but it, it's, it's there as well. And I just somehow been let in to this world as someone with like no A-level, no, no degrees. I wasn't even like cool Northern you know, as a music writer, like a, a lot of the kind of music press, they wanted cool Northern, like Manchester Northern, Liverpool Northern, places with really good bands. I was just like, <laughs> not not even quite Northern, like still Midlands. So I'm just, um, so so I'm like, how did how did they let me in? But but going going back to the the point, I now sort of have the have perspective on it, and I see what what I was then and how I was I was incredibly obedient, and I saw and these people I spoke to had this who had this immense confidence. Some of them were, were older, and I think the confidence came from age, but such self-assurance in the, in the things they said, the things they, they believed, the things they told you would and wouldn't work yes. um, with your writing. And it's almost like another version of, like, my granddad used to salute to doctors because he was like, these are the authority figures, like I'm, I'm beneath them. And he, and he worried about getting ideas above his station. And I, I was a bit like that, really. And I, ju I just, everything these people said, like they're more well-educated, they're, they're often from the South. And I just believed everything they said. So I did everything they said. I think I'd, it'd be the same again if I did it all again. But what I started to realise is that comes from generations of, I mean, I have this long peasant lineage, basically. And it's, it's just all about that. And it's instilled. And I see it in my parents. Like, they didn't have the boldness to do what they really wanted to do. They were told they weren't allowed to. And now as now they've retired, they're doing art and they've got a nice house. But they, they struggled for fucking years 
to get to that point. And they think that I'm very bold with what I've done. Yeah. Well, I mean, you are, I think, contextually. Like that That just so much of what you just said is it hits so close to home for me because obviously I have this. Uh, I don't know if you can have an RP Irish accent, but if you can, I have one. So it's not regional. You can't really tell where I'm from with it. And that is because it was in the like, obviously, I don't mean it in a in a pejorative way because I absolutely loved my mother and she had so many wonderful characteristics. But one of her not so good ones was, um, uh, although I understand the motivation for it, which was to kind of lift us out of what she saw was somewhere she didn't want us to stay. She essentially just corrected every single word out of my mouth until I was about 10 and yeah. manufactured this. Like there's a really strong regional accent where I come from. Um, my brother has a little more of it than I have because he still lives there. But uh, I was so obedient to authority yeah. and, and kind of unconfident. I didn't realize that university wasn't you know, obligatory until I was about 15. Like it was just a thing we were told we would do. It was that was it. Yeah. And in a sense, I think my my mother's choices for us really uh, reveal the working class confusion under her aspiration, which is, you know, she she sort of supported and helped me to get into a really good university to go study English and philosophy. That is not what the rich people study. You know, they do law. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, so I studied all the wrong things to, you know, improve my life. And I, I remember my mother having a conversation once with a doctor about my grandmother who was ill at the time. My mother used the word exempted when talking to the doctor and she didn't know if that was a word or not. And she tortured herself for about two months after that, thinking that she had misused a word in front of a consultant oh. and was so humiliated by it. Yeah, but that that happens. That's one of those things that um, like, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd quite call myself an autodidact, I, but I am kind of, I, I know that I read a lot of words that I'd never heard set, said aloud. And yeah. I, I was really worried about like saying the wrong thing. And um, like I'd read, I'd read Truman Capote when I was in my early twenties and I met a writer from like quite a well-off background. And um, I said Truman Capote and she really put me in my place. Cause, but I'd never heard anyone say it. I, I didn't know how, how you pronounce his name. Um, and, but I think, but I actually relate to what you're saying about your mum to an extent. I mean, I don't think my, my mum kind of perhaps did it to that extent, but I do remember like, um, I think I was starting to talk quite, quite North Knots when I was in my teens. And uh, I, I sort of miss it in a way. I'm, I'm sad that it's been softened out. But I remember like we went to the dentist and I said, hey, help me up to the dentist. <laughs> my mum said, don't, don't say up me up to the dentist Tom he's, he's from Surrey and uh, <laughs> and, and like so, so I kind of I think I refined it slightly um but without her putting like a lot of pressure on on me but but like she was from Liverpool and I don't think um she wanted to be really scouse sounding actually but in a way if you come from a, a slightly working class background and if you have a, a strong regional accent then it's it's sort of easier for people to get you and get what you're about yeah. Like I sometimes think that it would be for me if I still had more of the accent I had when I was younger, people would get me a bit more because I, I do think I've had the edges sanded off the way I talk, which comes from living with Southerners in the past. It comes from living in Norfolk, which is quite a soft spoken place and, and my time in London and my time here in Devon as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think in a sense you're correct because obviously, you know, the institutional elites for whatever you want to call them the kind of people who you know um have positions of power in structures like newspapers or whatever mm. um which is not everybody but you know the sort of ancestrally uh, privileged people they kind of know what to do with you as you say if you have a strong accent and in general yeah. that's keep you down there in a box but if you have a soft accent or you don't have an accent like i think my my mother was very mistakenly obsessed with the idea of me passing as something other than what I was born into. But but you can't, because as you say, you say Truman Capote or some you something indicates mm. uh, after not too long a time generally that you're not of this place. And so you can't ever really hide it. <laughs> there must have been so many. I mean, if I could actually go back and be a fly on the wall, like me meeting editors in my 20s or interviewing 
um, film directors. I must have said so many things that were like me just trying to fit in, trying to say the right thing, the right word, or trying to come across maybe as, as someone with some worldly experience and, and yeah. just, just getting it wrong. But I think it's it's all right to go through that stuff, isn't it? I think a lot of people do. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's part of figuring out, I, I guess, how to live in the world. And in my case, anyway, I came to be a lot more accepting of where I came from because I grew up sort of hating it and mm. feeling this intense urge to leave. Um, but it sounds like you didn't have that experience. I, I didn't, but I also, um, I, I'm just trying to remember if there was any kind of yearning. No, my yearning was just to live in California in the 60s, really, like more, <laughs> than, more than anything. But I do, I do remember going to Devon when I was, I was quite young and going, oh, I'd bloody love to live here. But, and that, that kind of took its time to surface. But, see, we didn't live in a pretty part of Nottinghamshire. It was sort of like fairly grim mining village. But, but every weekend we went to the Peak District, and that became part of me really, really quickly, like those kind of wild, rugged Derbyshire walks that we did um, every weekend when I was a kid. And that I suppose that was what I was yearning to get to, in the same way as my parents actually would be yearning to get to. I mean, they, God, they, I feel bad because I've had the chance to come and live somewhere as beautiful as Dartmoor where I live now and my parents would have loved to have done that like when they even when they were like sort of I mean I'm in my 40s now but but in their 20s 30s 40s they couldn't do it they they were trapped they had a kid and they were trapped in teaching jobs and they just wouldn't have been brave enough to leave the life that they had established there in Nottinghamshire I think whereas I did, but maybe that's because of their help. I mean, they've never given me financial help, but they've given me help by just talking about intellectual concepts with me and, um, and, and educating me and being curious people about the world. And, and that's perhaps eventually given me the confidence to do some of the things that I really want to do. Yeah. They, they perhaps didn't quite have that, which, which is a bit sad. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think in, in terms of, a working class background there I, I sort of experienced the same in that there was definitely aspiration for me and all of my kind of intellectual interests and my creative interests were absolutely encouraged but there was also this kind of simultaneously with that ambition there was this fear on my behalf like almost who do you think you are to want to do something like that or to want to go to a place like that you know people like us don't really succeed in it so she kind of simultaneously wanted that for me and was terrified of what would happen if I tried to achieve it that's the thing that that really hits home for me um because um yeah they they definitely they wanted that they wanted me to have a better life than they had an easier life but I mean they they kind of thought that would come from going to university so um which I was never invested in I never wanted to I only went to university because um, I wanted to be closer to the girl I was going out with at the time. So I got <laughs> as close as I could to her, which was York. Um, and she was in Newcastle. And um, I didn't kind of know why I was there, really. And I'd been doing this fanzine, um, music fanzine, and really enjoying it. Just just a very DIY sort of thing. But interviewing bands and it was and getting free records and it was really exciting. And university kind of was like, not as exciting. But I... But I'd gone there, I took my way in with a, a crap VTech and five C's at GCSE. And um, I only lasted like two months. But when I quit, my mum and dad, they, they were really worried about me, I think. I mean, they were quite harsh. They were kind of like, just go out and get a job and fly the nest kind of thing. They were, they were just like, um, but per perhaps it was good they were so, so harsh with me. But I said to them, I'm going to do another issue of this fanzine people like it john peels mentioned it on telly people definitely like it um and i'm going to send it to the enemy and the melody maker and i'm going to get a job and they were like people like us don't do that are you high <laughs> yeah what, what are you talking about so i did it and it was like it was like so obviously a job audition i paid like the little money i had um which came from sell selling some records um i paid to have it printed at pronto print in Nottingham, which was, uh, it's not that fancy, but it was a bit fancier than, than what I'd had done. And I remember I had like, I sent it to something like four editors at the Enemy and Melody Maker. And um, I remember handing 
the fanzines to the postman as he was emptying the post box. So they just made the last post. And the next day I got a call from the live editor at the NME saying, do you want to work for us? And I was, I, I was like, in your face, mum and dad. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's such a cool story. It does show as well, doesn't it, that sometimes if you, um, if you have a moment of kind of obscenely, uh, almost intergenerationally misplaced self-confidence, amazing things can happen. Like, if you just do it. <laughs> yeah, because I was like a, a sort of university dropout who was just kind of not doing much. And uh, I didn't have much to believe. I'd also been, I tried to be a pro sportsman as well. I tried to be a golfer and I'd failed at that as well. So I was just like a total failure at that point in my life. <laughs> God knows where I had that confidence. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I mean having nothing to lose is in some way helpful also i find the kind of sometimes sharing work from a distance so you can't see when someone reads it and goes oh no yeah <laughs> yeah that that's good isn't it but but weirdly i look back because i'm actually i'm thinking of doing another fanzine this sounds probably ridiculous but but i i that that's one of my next projects that i've got lined up um and because i love doing it i love that diy thing and i i was thinking going back and thinking about this recently um and that's a lot of the freedom that i have now because i i approached it from weird angles and did quite humorous writing about music and and i lost that at the, the enemy and um and the music magazines i wrote for afterwards because i was actually i was scared and i was trying to be like everyone else i wasn't being yeah. the writer that i was i was just like i'd read their reviews and i'd say you know how can i make a pun like the way they make a pun here or how can i sum it up like this so none of that felt like me and then so in a way that that sort of more free way of writing was right there from when i was sort of 17 18 in a in a very undereducated probably grammatically incorrect form <laughs> but uh, you've obviously managed to get to the place in your career, like you're you're working on. It's your first novel, isn't it? It's yeah. I've waited a long time, <laughs> really. Yeah. So how, um, where does the confidence come from at this stage? Is it has it been sort of a slow incremental step away from the things other people think constitute success, or has this been kind of a deliberate route for you? Oh, it's definitely slow and gradual. And I sort of so I, I remember. I've scrapped novels something like three or four times and it was heartbreaking like for me at the time. Like, I'd get to something like 30,000 words and I'd feel like, but fiction's what I really want to do. I, but then I'd, I'd like, go, well, but I've also got to pay the rent and journalism and nonfiction paid the rent. So stop being in this fantasy world where you think you can be a fiction writer. And, um, but also believing that that was what I really wanted to do and it was the truest art form. But, but to be honest, looking back, it wasn't very good what I was writing <laughs> then. It, it was, I didn't believe in it. I didn't believe in any of the characters I was creating. Maybe it was just impossible for me to be at that stage. I hadn't lived enough. I hadn't read enough books. I hadn't written enough. So to do it in the way that I wanted to do it, I just had a notion. And then I got to 30 and thought, 30, you're allowed to write fiction, surely. And then got into my mid-30s, still hadn't done it. Got to 40, still hadn't bloody done it. You're never going to be on that granter best writers under 40 list, are you? Not, not that that's motivation for anything, but you, <laughs> you realise, you know, it's like when you go, okay, I'm not going to be a pro footballer now. That's past now. And you, you sort of, you realise those things. But because of Unbound, it gave me the freedom to sort of say to people, the people from my books, I'm going to write fiction now. But what I did is I wrote Help the Witch, which was short stories instead. And that feels now like it was a good decision because I was desperate to do a novel then. But I actually thought, I, I was cautious. I said, don't run before you can walk. This is your first fiction. Just have a go at some short stories. Feel your way into it. And that, I think that's given me the confidence to do it. But the only thing the confidence comes from is just doing it fuckloads of times and just actually being in front of that blank page, creating something out of your mind and trusting in it because I actually didn't know where this book was going to go I just had a had a flavor in my head about it and just a just a feel and it's been an incredibly rewarding experience and it makes me feel like god I'd like to do more of this and stop fucking writing about myself all the time I'm tired of talking about myself in books <laughs> but I, I wanted to ask you sorry just to go back to what what you were saying before 
I'm really interested to know how you feel like when you approach one of these pieces on Patreon or for Patreon that, that you're writing, where the difference in how you approach that to how you would say approach a piece of journalism where maybe an editor has, has actually given you quite a, f a free brief to do some, to cover a subject and, and how it's different for you. Um, well, I mean, I guess I, I should say on that, that, uh, I, I work in a bunch of different sort of spaces, like you described earlier in your career. So I have like a foot in a bunch of different things. So I do, yeah. uh, I do beauty related stuff, um, which started as a hobby when I was at university. Um, and I, so I still do that, but the Irish times column that I used to do, um, it had various iterations, but I should say that my, my uh, old editor there, Roisin Ingle, who is my friend was the kind of editor that, is does not exist in real life she just <laughs> let me write whatever i wanted every week yeah there are a few of them out there yeah if, if she changed a word it was a it was an unusual week and wow. i just presume she had a good reason to do it so yeah i was very lucky in that but obviously there were things that i felt like i couldn't write about or that weren't relevant to that particular audience um or ways that you would uh, would censor what you did mm. so i think the, the main difference between um what I do now on Patreon is just that it feels like it doesn't have any limitation. So the kind of thing that you were saying earlier where columnists have this strange um, artificial pressure to respond in the moment, to be reactive all the time. And yeah. I think that does, um, that creates an environment in which you get these sort of um, really pompous, exaggerated faux angry columns that we see all over the place yeah and then and then with with thousands of people on social media then getting angry in response to those yeah yeah and and i think especially when you've when you've written sort of in that format you do understand that to an extent not that i ever want to presume insincerity on anyone's part because i don't know individual people's intent but it is a game and mm. the, the you know the outcome of the game is that you win if people click so that's yeah. kind of the motivating factor there. Whereas with Patreon, I can just write whatever I want to write that week. So if it's something mm. important that I feel I've thought about, then I can write something reactive. But I, for example, I love the fact that I wrote something about um, women and violence and it touched on Sarah Everard. And I did that three and a half weeks after that was sort of a news story because I wanted to think about what I thought first. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what people need to do, don't they? But but the newspaper world's never going to allow that, is it? No, no, it doesn't. It, it's not going to make money in, in kind of the advertising model that exists right now. Um, but I think the sad result of it is that you don't get considered uh, writing on, on really sensitive topics uh, and, and yeah. lose nuance. Um, so, yeah. People need to know this. People who are reading it need to know that. They need to bear that in mind, I think, because they, they don't. I don't think that that's part of your well it's part of maybe some people's thought processes before they they read it but a lot a lot of people won't but that's the same with i mean far less important topics but it, it's the same with when i was reviewing records i'd have so little time with the record yeah. that i'd have to have an opinion and i'd be writing these things and i, I would actually be thinking well, why why should anyone listen to what i think it's just totally arbitrary and i've had like a week with this record i'm not a musician so, like, what right have I got to speak about it? I tried to be a bit entertaining, but I, I always remember <laughs> feel really terrible about this. This is um, this is band called Madder Rose, who were from New York, and they were like um, a female singer, Mary. She was called. I've forgotten her surname, but they're dead good in the nineties, um, Velvet Underground kind of thing. And I'd, I'd love their first two records, and then they kind of made a bit of a sort of trip hop album when trip hop was was sort of fashionable and I, di I didn't like it very much and I sort of I reluctantly said that I didn't like it and I felt really bad because I'd, I'd met them and stuff and the Guardian being the Guardian then and with all their subbing errors and everything um, they ran the review two weeks in a row so this poor gentle lovely band got kind of two two slight kickings and uh, but but then I just but that I look back at that and I just think that's really horrible. I don't want to just be like saying I don't like things in newspapers. And I particularly don't want to be saying like I don't like things that 
I haven't had enough time with. Who knows? Maybe that's like a way better record than I thought it was, but it would have revealed its charms months later. This happens with books as well. There are some books that I, I read and I didn't get, and then I went and gave another go to. Um, I'd love to say that I got The Rings of Saturn by W.G. Seabold immediately and knew it was a masterpiece. I tried to read it at 26 and I didn't get it. And then I thought it was boring. And then I read it at, at like 31 and thought it was an utter masterpiece and it changed my life. <laughs> This this happens with the, these things you talk about. Yeah, yeah. I, I I suppose it's it's not something that if you so few people kind of see behind the way that uh, you know the the manner in which news and uh, media information is constructed and the pressure to like constantly pump it out. So this idea that you can do that and not compromise in some way on quality is just nonsense. It's not possible. It it really is. And when you write your pieces, is there still a voice in your head um, as you write them, which is like the response to it or the archetypal reader? Because I, I found that when I was writing those Guardian columns, as I, as I wrote it, I didn't think it, I don't think it made them worse, but it perhaps inhibited me. I'd have written like seven nasty comments, pre-written them in my head, below the line comments as I was writing it, like, or, or just, or I was just really aware of the kind of person that would would read it and want to take offence. Like like some guy got really fucked off with the fact that I like trees, you know, just made him, <laughs> like really angry. It's like you could just imagine him like walking around his house, like trying to just punch in the fridge. God, he hates trees so much, you know. Like those sort of people. I mean, they're not they're not significant, but it's part of the newspaper world, and you, you're just very aware of of the way it's presented and who, who it goes to. And it, it gets in your head, I think, a bit as you write. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can. I think particularly, um, I definitely wasn't prepared for it when I started because I was, I, was a, I was a graduate student and I kind of fell in accidentally to writing uh, pieces for newspapers when I met my editor, Roisin, in a pub through a friend. And um, so I wrote a couple of things for her and then that turned into other work. And it was really, it was kind of, I, I don't know why, I've never been particularly wounded by negative comments because I've had plenty of them. But I remember the first piece that I wrote, um, there was some woman who commented under, but had, it was back when you had to um, share your details to be a commenter on a newspaper website. So I know they don't all do that. So she was Googleable, and I Googled her and she was kind of like, making all of these weird sort of allusions to the fact that I must be very promiscuous and that I'm obviously very stupid. And I go, and she was a lecturer at my own university. You're kidding. <laughs> not, wow. not, not one that taught me, but I was just kind of thinking, wow, what is, what's your day been like? You know, what's going on? You okay? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing to think like someone like that's teaching people. I and know. Stuff. People like me at the time. <laughs> Because sometimes I suppose like I've, I've been really, really fascinated. I mean, I, I actually, I find, I find the comments fascinating sometimes more than, I've, I think I've got past that thing of being upset because you, what you, what you realize when there's just some, been some really nutty, nasty attack on something you've written, which, which broadly like most people seem to have responded positively to, you realize you this, if you met this person, you probably wouldn't have wanted them to like what you've written. So you, you think about it like that, and that's a more kind of rational approach. But sometimes I just, like, I find some of my one-star Amazon reviews are absolutely hilarious. And um, and a couple of times I click just to see what the other people, what the people have said about other things. And I've gone, ah, that explains it, you know, what they've, what else they've slagged off or something, or the things they, and I've gone, yeah, that, that explains who this person is. Because most of the time when I'm looking at the internet and looking at one comes back to me, I know my default thing, despite all that I've seen, my default setting is everyone's great. Everyone speaks to you, who speaks to you is going to be great. Keith Richards talked about it in his autobiography, how he's like a person who everyone's great until they prove otherwise. That's his attitude to the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mick Jagger's like, everyone's a bastard until they prove that they're not <laughs> and, uh, and he said that's how they differ and i'm definitely more more like keith but you can be quite burned by that on the internet as well when when you once again get disabused of that notion 
for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I just find it funny um, to an extent. It's it's a really interesting form of arrogance that, you know, I don't I don't peruse the Internet and presume that everything written is for me. And therefore, I have a moral obligation to go, you know what, I'd, I'm not interested in engineering. So it's like going into a burrito restaurant and shouting, I don't like Mexican food and running out. You know, shut the doors. So much. That's that's what that's just the way it works. And um and people still still don't seem to get it. I mean, just imagine if you actually toured the internet, just finding things that you didn't like or you're offended by. Just how much time that would actually take. And and the thing of, I mean, I'm, I I think maybe in the early days of Twitter, I might have mentioned some music I didn't like. But now I'm like, what's the point? What's the point of just talking about anything you don't like? Because I've sort of seen it. Like people do it in the replies. Every time I say I like a song, there's someone who, it seems there's someone who comes along and says, no, it's not very good. You're wrong. <laughs> and uh, and I kind of think, what are they expecting me to do? Like go, all right, well, now you, a stranger, has told me that. I will completely write off the 20 years I've spent adoring this song and all the times it's made me feel really happy and reevaluate my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, but it's, it just feels like there's enough negativity and there's just, I don't want to, like, I don't, I don't like Coldplay, but I'm not going to tweet that I don't like Coldplay. But now I've said it in this interview, haven't I? So that's maybe that's creating negativity. Maybe, but I presume you, you embrace people who want to enjoy their music. So I think that's the difference that other people can like it and that's all right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I like I like the thought that people are getting enjoyment from things. And if it's genuine enjoyment, how can you question that? Why would you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. But just going back to something you said there, I, I thought when you were talking about your editor, and she sounds really great, I think um, it's great when you get an understanding editor like that. I've had, I've had, some, I've had a very harsh editor on a book, um, my second golf book, and he was called Tristan Jones. And um, I thought at the time that that was the best thing I'd ever written. And I gave it to him and I was feeling like, like, oh, I'm excited about that. And it came back with all these pen marks all over it. And I just wanted to cry. And, uh, and I, then I had a two or three days away and I, I look, looked again and he was, um, he was bang on. And he really made me like a lot harsher with myself. And that was... Um, so he did me such a favour. He changed me as a writer. He's a properly good editor, but really harsh. And I think it's good good to have harsh editors in the newspaper world as well. Mm. But I don't think what we're saying here by saying, like, we want to do this this free writing that's just like the things about we're burning to write about in a considered nuanced way that isn't trapped by newspapers. We're not saying we don't want to be edited, are we? We're not saying, like, editors are annoying. Oh, gosh, no, no. It's nothing like that. And I'd hate someone to, to think that. And when I first quit The Guardian and I wrote, I wrote a thing to say why I'm quitting because loads of people wrote the column and I didn't want them to just think, oh, it's not there anymore. I wanted an explanation. Loads of um, media people half read it or kind of read like, I don't know, a paragraph of it that someone had screenshotted and they responded to that. And they thought that I was being pissy about being edited, mm -hmm. which is the last thing in the world I, I was being. I, I really, God, I appreciate editing so much. It's such a skill. And it was nothing to do with, they said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm annoyed because the columns can't be long. They were actually intended to be long. And some things need to be long and some things need to be short. And I was, I, I was sort of, but I'm, I'm very accepting about being edited. And, and I actually... If I could afford it, I'd like an editor on my website pieces as well. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's one of those it's one of those interesting situations. I think you learn an an enormous amount about kind of writing and yourself and other people through having someone else look at even you know even a short article because obviously I do I don't I have not written anything like the lengthy kind of really in depth stuff that you do, um, but. A lot of the time, especially in journalism, your editor is the one who saves you from yourself. Also, the sub-editors, who I think are the most um, undervalued people in any publication. Like, yeah. so often they have saved me from saying something stupid or wrong or illegal. Um, and they're so important. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they are. I mean, it's such a fine tooth comb, like on, on the books as well, the, the, the copy editing 
stage they don't they don't actually say much like about the book in general as i hand it in there, there'll maybe be just like a, a few little questions a few tweaks or i'll ask them a question like and say do you do you think this is all right like this or do you think i i, I was wondering about about changing it around slightly um but then the copy editing thing it's a long process and and they spot so much mm. you think you've spotted everything and there's ju just so many little things and even then even with like a professional publisher there's maybe like one tiny apostrophe that gets in that shouldn't to the final copy or, or like there's a there's an extra squirrel which is in my um my latest book notebook it's got two, two squirrels in it by mistake that, <laughs> but that, that's illustrations yeah i remember you saying yeah that there were there were two it's uh yeah, it seems to be, I really admire any kind of brain that can look over the same piece of text a hundred times and actually see it after the second time. I don't know yeah. what sort of person can do that. but That's a different brain to mine, definitely. Yeah, yeah, That's for sure. That's a completely different skill, yeah. I think to close, I should ask, I'm, I'm interested if one sort, maybe I should have flagged this up in advance because it seems like an enormous question that would throw me if somebody asked. But is there any moment or or a series of moments in your life that kind of stand out to you as being massive catalysts for change oh god yeah that's that is one that like i i perhaps need a bit a bit of time to think about but you know being really terrified of about money will kind of help you change a few things i suppose um that i think that drove me like that that kind of terror and it and it made me made me make more of an effort to to turn things around um that was like i think 2012 that that was sort of the time when that that was really so so there was that but i'll probably forget something really massive here and just like text you afterwards and go oh fucking hell i forgot this this is like the <laughs> whole explanation for everything i do was there anything that kind of uh, do you know when you realised that you wanted to write words for a living, regardless of what you were writing them about? Um, yeah, I, th I think I just, I wanted to write stories when I was a, a little kid, and I did. And and I was always nagging my mum and dad. Like, they, they always read to me, and they love reading to me, but I would always be like, I'm not going to sleep, one more, one more. I'd just keep being like that. And then I, I went totally away from that as a teenager. I was a really sporty teenager. I mean, I did... Golf was my main thing, but I did pretty much every sport for a while and didn't read and then came back to it. And But I think actually my desire right from day one of coming back to it, even though, you know, exciting idea to be a music journalist, I was really into music. It was to tell stories. I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to write books. That was that was what excited me. So it's it's actually been a very long journey to get onto what I is the path that I wanted to be on when I was six, really. And then this gradual realisation that it is a very different thing, writing a novel that you really want to write, to writing a, a book that someone, if you sum it up in a chapter and a synopsis, someone will give you some money for, because it sounds good. Like the sexiest book in terms of marketing pitch that I wrote is, is the book of mine that I loathe. <laughs> Honestly, like, I just tell everyone not to buy it. And it's out <laughs> of print. And I really hope it's called Educating Peter. And I just hope it stays out of print. Like, if you listen to this, anyone, just don't, please don't. But if people would like to support your upcoming novel, how should they do that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Which I presume is good. Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the main thing is that I'm really enjoying it. And I've got this um, quote on my office or office wall. Um, which is from a Fairport Convention song, and uh, it's um, the fiddler. He just loves to play. That's why he plays so well, and that's kind of my philosophy. And it's like if it's all the things that have been most enjoyable to write, and when I say enjoyable, I mean with all the pain and agony that goes with writing, all the anxiety, all the beating yourself up as part of that enjoyment. But the things that you also have really a lot of fun with they've ended up being the best things that I write. So I kind of, I just trust that. I, tr I trust going into it and just, just going, I'm going to have a load of fun here in my imagination. Um, and that's what this book perhaps feels even more like than my others, but it is very niche. 
it's quite strange it's not for everyone and um but that's that's fine and i i just i'm accepting that i mean you're not you are doing it mainly for yourself i think because it's in the process is what you enjoy the most you do want people to enjoy it you don't just want to leave it in in a cave never to be found after you've finished it it's it's important we we like to get even if we can't take compliments <laughs> we like to get um get a bit of not nice feedback um and it's a combination of the two but i think the ultimate thing why are you doing it if you're not going to enjoy the process just just do do what you really love with it that's very good advice I know, uh, I know it's funded, but if people want to pre-order it, where, where can they go and do that? Oh, yeah, I should do a plug type thing, I suppose. You don't have to, but... <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> I, well, it's, it's, on, it's Unbounds, the crowdfunding publisher, and I think they have like a Discover page or something or New Projects page, and it's called Villager. So the thing is that it did fund quite quickly, which is really just... It's no, that's not money that goes to me. That's just money that the publisher get to make the book but then anything that goes above that that's shared between me and the publisher in the in the normal kind of way and it's a better way for people to buy it if they want to support independent publishing and support an author i suppose and what it means is they get the really nice first edition which will have nice artwork on it and they can get a signature or they might be able to there's a few little extra bits on there so if, if anyone wanted to do that that's always hugely appreciated great um yeah I've, I've i've got mine on the way when it's when it's ready oh thank you um i'm really looking forward to reading it but uh thanks i've really enjoyed this it was nice to finally talk to you like a person um yes you too yeah <laughs> And, and good luck with with what you're doing. I'm go, you know, I'm going to go and subscribe now. Oh, you can't see after the that's worse than a compliment. I can't. <laughs> I want can't. to. I'm really intrigued by what. I mean, I'm really intrigued by what you said. A couple of things you said about what you've written on your um on your Instagram when you were talking about it and people's response. It made me really curious. So, I think I'm I'm going to do that. Okay, well, I really appreciate it if you do, but there is no pressure to in this. I, I don't know how to extract myself from this exchange. So <laughs> I'm going to say thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again in real life sometime soon. That, that would be wonderful. Thank you, Laura. If you've been enjoying Second Self or found it valuable or interesting in any way, I would really appreciate if you would consider supporting the work that I'm doing and the creation of this podcast by subscribing via Patreon. You'll find me there at patreon.com slash lkennedy. For around the price of a cup of coffee once a month, you can help ensure that episodes of Second Self keep coming. Patreon subscribers also gain access to a back catalogue of over a hundred pieces of written and audio content, as well as my Peak Notions column, which comes out every week on Patreon, and monthly long reads, both of which come in written and audio versions. If you're not in a position to support the podcast financially right now, please don't worry. If you've been enjoying it, I hope you continue to enjoy it. But if you are in a position to contribute, your doing so will ensure that episodes continue to be made so that everyone can benefit from them, including the people who'd like to be able to contribute, but can't. Thank you for listening to Second Self. This episode was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. The music was written by Team. <laughs>